But what a delight to be here with you this morning. We are, are so thankful. For those of you that are uh, watching online, and you do so every week so faithfully as part of our body, thank you for being faithful to the Lord and, and for continuing to worship. We pray for you. Uh, we long to see you as a church again, and we are waiting for that day when the Lord allows that. And uh, those of us who pastor you want you to know how much we love you, and we're praying for you, and we'll, we want to be a good church body and good shepherds to you. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, where we have been studying this marvelous armor that God has provided for us. And I have to admit, as I began working through these texts, I preached through the book of Ephesians in 2004, and when I got to this section uh, of Ephesians, uh, I think we were about 2005 or 2006, so we had a very lengthy time in the book. The book was revolutionary to me. It, it was probably one of the foundational things I've ever done in my life in terms of setting my heart and my understanding of gospel ministry. So I went back to those sermons and I decided uh, that, that when we were coming through these texts that I would set those sermons aside and I would actually come back to these texts as though I had never seen them before. And so that's what I've been doing. And it has been amazing to me at the richness of what I'm finding. And so much of that comes over the years that have happened, the things that have happened over those intervening years. You know, the Lord has a way of growing your understanding by the things you experience. And you're here this morning, and some of you are at the front end of your walk with God. You're at the front end of your marriage, and we celebrate that with you. We are so thankful that you're here. And one of the things I'm most excited about for you is, is as you go through life, as you go through the next five years and the next 10 years and the next 20 years, and for some of you, the next 30, 40, or 50 years, your understanding of God's Word is going to be deepened by what you go through in life. Because God's Word was never intended just to be something that you intellectually embrace. It's always been something that is supposed to shape your life and make a difference in how you live your life as you go out into the world that desperately needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we talk about the next piece in this armor, uh, it's an amazing thing that God gives us armor, isn't it? And what's even more amazing to me is that He didn't just give us the armor, He actually wore the armor for us as our champion. We've talked about this. We noted that the obedience that Christ rendered to the law of God, every, every moment of His life, every thought, every intent, every motive for all of his life, from the day of his birth till the day of his death, and uh, was, was marked by an obedience to God. When the scripture says he learned obedience, it's talking about the fact that he experienced obedience in every facet of life, at every moment of life, under every conceivable circumstance in life. He learned, he experienced obedience, and that perfect obedience was for us a belt of truth. The idea of truth there isn't just that we tell the truth, it's that we live truthfully, that we live faithfully. And in the Old Testament, we went to the book of Isaiah and we saw Messiah was wearing this belt of truth, this belt of faithfulness. And his faithfulness and obedience to God is our obedience. And it has always been our obedience, hasn't it? We have never been made righteous by any obedience of our own. Titus says it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by His righteousness that we are made righteous. And so that obedience that Jesus rendered perfectly to the Father in every way, under every conceivable circumstance, internal, external, acts of omission, acts of commission, He did what God told Him to do. He didn't do what God told Him not to do in thought, in mind, in heart, in deed. That obedience resulted in a perfect righteousness that was never available to us in our own strength. It was lost by one act of disobedience from the first Adam, and it was regained by a lifetime of obedience 
by the second Adam. And that wonderful righteousness that he obtained became for us a breastplate. That obedience, his obedience was credited to our account. His righteousness was imputed to us. And all of this created by the work of Christ on the cross, an amazing shalom, an amazing peace that God has extended to us. Christ made a peace for us with God, and that peace isn't just with God, it is now with one another. This is good news indeed, and that's why the third piece of the armor is the armor that is described as the armor that this champion of God wore, the shoes that took him on that mountain to announce God reigns. And there is great joy and good tidings. And we noted that 800 years after that messenger in Isaiah appeared, 800 years later there was a baby born in the city of David. And and with that birth came an angelic announcement. Peace on earth. And Paul said to the Romans that anybody who believed on the name of that baby who had grown up to be the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, anybody who believed, anybody who called on that name would be saved. And then he asked a series of questions, but how in the world are people going to ever call on a name that they've not believed? And how are they going to believe on a name they've never heard about? And how are they going to hear about that name if somebody doesn't come and preach that name to them? And how in the world is somebody ever going to have the courage to go into a world that is full of hostility and enmity and preach that name unless they are commissioned? And 33 years after his birth, Jesus stood on a mountain Maybe the very mountain that that Isaiah servant that we saw in the Old Testament was on. And he said this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he commissioned servants to go with a very different message than the prophet Isaiah was commissioned to go with in Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah 6? He was commissioned to go with a message of judgment. Now there's a whole bunch of servants just like Isaiah, who have been cleansed by Jesus and they are commissioned to go into his name everywhere with this wonderful news. And they are eager and ready to do it. Like Paul was when he wrote to the Romans, he said, I am eager, I am ready to come and preach this gospel. Are you ready to do that? I mean, think about all the brokenness that is in the world around us. Think about what's going on in our country. We prayed this morning for 17 missionaries. I cannot imagine what their families are going through. I can't imagine what their mission boards are experiencing. I can't imagine what their churches are experiencing. You and I have no concept. We resonate with it because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. But we would be feeling very different this morning, wouldn't we, if one of those missionaries was our son or our daughter or our brother or our cousin or our mother or our father or our uncle. And they are something far closer. They are brothers in Christ. Think about all the brokenness that's going on, all the confusion that's going on in the world around us. I mean, turn on the television. Don't you just get tired sometimes of hearing and and listening to the news and there's nothing you can do about it? And the Apostle Paul says, actually, there's something you can do about it. You can strap on a readiness, an eager joyfulness to take the one thing to those people in that world that will change everything for them. And it is the gospel of peace that God has made. This is an amazing reality, folks. So that brings us then to this. When I go into that world with that gospel, and I go not in my strength, but in the strength that Jesus has provided, and I'm not looking to my obedience or to my righteousness, I'm looking to the obedience that He won for me and the righteousness that has been imputed to me, and I take that message to the gospel, of the gospel to the world, what can I expect? And Jesus told us what we would expect. 
when we take the news of this marvelous message to a world that is broken by sin and that is being energized and ruled by an ancient enemy of God, we can expect attack. And so the question is, what will protect me as I advance? And Paul says there is a shield. And so we want to talk about this shield that God has provided for us. So let's uh, do three things this morning. Let's, let's understand what the shield is, all right? That's the first thing we want to do. The second thing we want to do is we, we want to ask ourselves, so now that I know what the shield is, how do I actually use it? How do I take this incredible shield that God has given to me, and how do I employ it so that it actually protects me from every attack that Satan throws at me? So how do I use the shield? And then the third thing is, why doesn't it work? Pastor Sam, I, I hear about the shield, and I, I actually believe what you're saying, but, but I just have to say to you that it's not working in my life. So what is the issue? How do I get this shield to actually protect me? And so we're going to look at the power that is in this shield. All right, so those are the three things that we're going to do uh, this morning. But before we do there, there's, there's some sort of context that we want to make sure we understand. Because as we've noticed, as we went to the belt of truth, and we went to the breastplate of righteousness, and we went to the shoes of preparation that come out of the gospel of peace, we noted that all three of those pieces of the armor were pieces that we were to put on. And the idea there is to permanently wear these all the time. And the second thing we noted about that is that by putting these on, that's actually how we stand. When Paul talked about standing and resisting and not giving ground to the devil, we had a big question. How in the world are we actually going to do that? And Paul's answer is, well, here's how. You have to put these pieces of armor on. And so we've spent our time looking at that. All right, so and then the third thing we noted was that every one of those first three pieces of armor has an Old Testament parallel in which somebody else is shown wearing that armor. And the person that we saw in the Old Testament wearing that armor is Jesus, the Messiah. All right, so that's kind of where we, we, we've been. So what is the Old Testament connection to this piece of armor? Because we're not told to wear this piece of armor, we're told to take it up. In fact, the next three pieces of armor are pieces of armor that we take up. We're wearing the first three pieces, now we take up. And the idea there is in the ancient world, when you went off to battle, you had armor and you wore certain armor all the time as a soldier, but when you actually found yourself in the middle of a battle, you needed to use, you needed to take up certain pieces. And so there's a helmet, and there's a sword, and there's a shield, and we are to take those up and use them in the battle. And so what is the Old Testament counterpart to the idea of shield? And so there are two things I want you to see. Number one, in the Old Testament, God himself says to his people, I am the shield. In the Old Testament, Messiah wore certain armor, and now we're going to find out he is the armor. He is the shield. Let me give you some texts that affirm this. In Genesis 15, after a very difficult time in Abraham's life where he is wondering and questioning, God says to him in Genesis 15, 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, saying in a vision, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. And your reward will be very great. In 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-one, as David looked back over his life, as he finally is seated on his throne, and, and God has given to him everything that he said he would have, he, David is looking back and God says to him, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all of those who take refuge in him. This truth is so precious to David that he wrote it a second time in Psalm 18, verse 30. Moses reminded Israel of this in Deuteronomy 33, 29. Happy are you, O Israel, 
Why? Who is a people like you, saved by the Lord, the shield of your help? In Psalm 28, verse 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In Psalm 33, 20, He is our help and our shield. In Psalm 91, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield. And in Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge. So in the Old Testament, if you want to know who your shield is, God says, I, I am the one who is going to shield you. I am your shield. So that's the first thing we need to think about as we come to this amazing text in Ephesians chapter 6. In the Old Testament, God made really clear to his people that he was their shield. But there's another background piece that we need to know about. Because in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, the reason we need this shield is because somebody is hurling arrows at us. In fact, we read about this, right? Through the shield that we have been given here in verse 16, we can extinguish all the flaming darts, the arrows of the evil one. And so the second thing that the readers would have been expected to know, first thing was God in the Old Testament is the shield of his people. But secondly, if you lived in the city of Ephesus, there were two pagan gods who were famous archers. They had powerful skills in archery. They had weaponry that they were very, very skilled at. And they were both well-known and powerful pagan deities that everybody in the city of Ephesus would have known about. One of them was the patron goddess Diana, or Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, and she was known to be an archer. And the other was the very famous uh, Greek and Roman god, Apollos, or Apollo. And Apollo was also a very famous archer. And if you lived in the city of Ephesus, you understood that these patron gods were responsible for everything that happened in the city, for the well-being of the city and the protection of its citizens. And furthermore, you also knew that these gods expected you to do your civic and religious duty to them. And if you didn't, you would become the special object of their wrath. They would hunt you down with their arrows. Now, as a Christian, the Ephesians knew that these were nothing more than just stones. But behind the stones, Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, behind these stones is an army of evil beings who animate all of this and they're demons. And behind those demons, at the head of their rank, stands an ancient enemy and his name is Satan. And the question now is, if you lived in Ephesus and you were going to deny these two gods and turn your back on them and follow a god that nobody had ever heard about, who would protect you? And Paul says there is a shield that will protect you from all of this. So, let's talk about that shield. Number one, remember I said there were three things. Number one, what exactly is this shield? And Paul talks about this uh, in in chapter 6, verse 16, in all circumstances. In other words, this shield is necessary for every part of the battle under any condition, in any circumstance. And so you are to pick up your shield. And he says, now let me tell you what your shield is. Your shield is the faith. So it is the shield of the faith. And we'll talk about that little word, the, here in just a moment. But let's, let's, let's talk for a moment about the description, the biblical description of the shield. In Roman times, there were two kinds of shields. There was a small sort of round shield that you might carry into battle. It was called a buckler. And you'll read about that in the Psalms, for example. It's kind of a small circular shield that you might strap onto your arm. And it was sort of how you would parry a sword thrust. 
and you would wear it sort of here, and so, in, in, in a, you know, sort of when you were, or you would actually wear it on the arm that wasn't your sword arm, and so when you were in this battle and somebody was throwing a sword, you'd just move your arm up and that shield would protect you, and so that small round shield was called a buckler. But the shield Paul has in mind is actually different. I'm going to show you a picture of it, okay? That's the shield we're talking about. This was about uh, maybe two and a half to three feet wide and about four feet high. It would be made of sometimes metal. Uh, More often than not, it would be made of two pieces of wood that were bound together and covered with leather that was soaked in water and, and, uh, and hardened in the sun. And there would be a piece of metal uh, in the middle of the shield that you would use to kind of cast off uh, lance thrusts and arrows that would come. And, uh, and this was an amazing shield. It was sort of curved, and a, a Roman soldier could literally crouch down behind that shield. That's the shield that Paul is describing. It's the word for that shield that is used here in the text. So when Paul is telling you, you have a shield, and he uses the word for the shield that we're looking at, that's the idea that he wants you to have. So what is this amazing shield? And Paul's answer is, it is the faith. Now, in your English Bible, you'll see it described as just the shield of faith. But the way that Paul actually wrote this, he uses a construction that, to be sure, does refer to the fact that you need to have faith, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but he's also using something to help you understand that it's not just any faith that he's talking about. There is a shield, and the shield is made up of a faith that God gave. And we can see this throughout the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 4. Verse 5, and you'll kind of see what I'm talking about. In chapter 4, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith. There is one common set of beliefs that God has given to his people that we are to believe. There is one faith in verse 5 of chapter 4. We are to grow up in this faith. In fact, we are to grow in our understanding of this faith and in our embracing of this faith and in, this, in our obedience to the faith. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4, and you'll see that. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So there is a set of doctrines that God has given to the church, one faith. We have been called to embrace that faith. We have been called to grow in unity around that faith. And then in Verse 15, we are to confess that faith together. Listen to how Paul talks about this. Rather, speaking the truth in love. That's not talking about just telling the truth in a loving way. There is a particular truth that we are to confess. The idea there of speaking is confessing. We are to confess together the faith that Paul has been talking about. So there is a common set of beliefs that God gave to the church and he gave those beliefs to his apostles. And Jude is going to talk about this in verse 3 of his little letter when he says there is a faith once delivered, in other words, fully and finally delivered to the church that we must defend and that we must contend for. So when you ask yourself, what is this shield? The shield is a set of truths, a set of doctrines that God has given to the church that tell the truth about him. Because if he's going to be our shield, I'm going to have to believe the right things about him. If I don't believe the right things then it doesn't matter how strong my belief is or how fervent it is expressed. If I'm not believing something that is true, then it doesn't do me any good. Let me give you an illustration of this. 
Let's say that I actually become convinced that the earth is flat. And I become a flat earther. You ever met a flat earther? I've never met somebody who actually believes that. I've had people that have kind of said it for shock value, but I've never actually believed somebody who genuinely, truly believes that the earth is flat. But they're out there. And, And you know something? The fact that they genuinely believe that doesn't change the fact that the world isn't flat. And so it isn't what we believe, or I'm sorry, it's not, it's not how firmly we believe something or how faithfully we believe it or how fervently we are about it. We actually have to believe what's true for that belief to shield us. And so God has said, if I'm going to be your shield, then there are things you need to know about me and you need to believe those things and you need to know true things, things that actually are real about me. You need to know who I really am. For example, you need to know that when, when you think about me being your shield, you need to know that I am a trinity. That when you think of God, there is one God and there is three persons who exist in that Godhead in, in one common nature and in one common essence. And so there's God the Father, and there's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit. You need to understand that, and you need to know that, or else you will fall prey to a whole lot of error that comes knocking at your door when people knock on your door and say, hey, we want to talk to you about God. But the God we want to talk to you has a son who's not a God. He is a lesser God. And they're going to go to a passage in John, and they're going to say things like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And God said, if you don't believe the right thing about me that I wrote down in my Word for you, in that authoritative faith that I gave you, You're going to fall prey to that, and you're going to get sucked into a massive error that's going to lead you to damnation. I'm your shield, but but you have to believe the right things about me. Or you might be thinking, you know, there's there's a God, and his name is Allah, and he's actually the same God as the Old Testament God. We, we, we serve the same God, just different names. They call him Allah, we call him Jehovah, so, you know, actually, we, 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 we serve the same God, and actually, we don't. Because the God of the Old Testament is a trinity. He always has been a trinity. He has never not been a trinity. And so, whenever you say about the God you worship, He has a son who isn't a God. He is just a son like all of us are sons. And in fact, this one son, Jesus, is just a really good prophet. Whatever God you're talking about there, whatever his name is, he is not the God of the Bible. And so when you start thinking through all of these things and you want the true God of heaven to be your God and to be your shield, you have to believe the right things about him. And where are those things? Those things have been written down. Paul talked about the fact that 27 books were written by, or Peter rather, talked about the fact that 27 books were written by holy men of old, moved by the Holy Spirit. And then there are 39 books that preceded those, and these 27 books complete the picture, the story that God wants you to know. And as you read those books, and you believe those books, and you trust those books, those books shape your life. That's what Solomon said when he said, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. How am I going to do that? Well, Psalm says, let me tell you how not to do it. Do not lean on your own understanding. You've got to go somewhere else to get understanding. Well, where am I going to go? And the answer is I've got to go to what God has revealed. So this shield that we're talking about has a spiritual function. 
when we believe what God told us to believe about him and we're believing the truth that is not the one we wish were true, right? We can go out and make our own little cardboard shield and kind of hold it up. We can decorate it. We can put little rhinestones on it and we can think, man, this is going to do great for us. And we get out there and the arrow of Satan comes right through and pierces us because we weren't believing something that was true. We made up our own truth. And the reason this is important is because the function of the shield is protection. It is to protect you from everything that Satan is going to hurl. What is going to protect the church collectively? And the answer is the doctrine that God has given to the church about himself and about salvation. Roman soldiers never fought alone. They always fought in cohorts. And when they would come together, they would link those big shields together and they would form a formation like this called a turtle. And they would hide behind this and they would march down the battlefield and the enemy would hurl arrows at them and they were protected by their, by their shield. And sometimes when they were ready to attack, the back row would stand up and hurl a javelin like you see here. And so this shield that God has given to us that you have individually, the church has corporately. That's why doctrine matters. That's why what you believe about doctrine matters. That's why when you start looking for a church and you start sort of asking God, well, tell me about the church where you're wanting our family to plug in, the first thing should not be, is it convenient for me? Is it close to my house? Does it have people I know? What about its programs? Does it have stuff for my kids? All of that's important, and those are questions that need to be answered. But at the end of the day, the first and foremost thing you want to know about the church is, what do they actually believe about the Bible? Where do they get their truth? Is it coming out of the pastor's opinion? Is it just what he says because that's the cool thing to say? Is it, is it just what he thinks up when he's kind of getting his sermons ready? Or can I see it in the text? For those of you that are newer here, the sermon notes are online every Sunday so that you actually can download them and have them. And if you actually download them, you'll you'll notice something. They are filled up with Scripture. Why? Because I don't ever want to stand up here and tell you my opinions. I want the Word of God to be what feeds you. It's not my words. It's not my ideas. It's not my opinions. I have opinions. I have ideas. I have thoughts. But that's not what comes here to this desk. That's that's not what comes from this pulpit. There's no place for that here. What's going to protect you as you leave here this morning? What's going to help your marriage? What's going to help you raise your kids? What's going to help you as a young person navigate all the frustrations and the pain and the agony that comes into your life as a teenager? Isn't what Pastor Sam thinks. It isn't what his opinion is. What is going to protect you, what is going to shield you, is what God has said. And that's why it matters. You say, well, what is this? She'll protect me from. Well, it protects you from arrows that Satan hurls at you. He'll hurl, for example, the arrow of temptation. All of us know what it is like for our sinful flesh to be aroused, to be tempted by some bait that Satan dangles. Man, this would feel so good if you just said that back. Or if you just did this. Or if you, ooh, look at that. And all of a sudden, there's a bait and, and our flesh inside us, our, our inner betrayer, looks at that bait, and, and, and there's an attraction to the bait. And if we don't have a shield that tells us the truth about that bait and exposes the hook and shows us time and time and time again over 2,000 years of church history, over 66 books of trophies that Satan has on his wall of believers who swallowed the bait, that arrow will just come through and pierce us. He shoots the arrow of trial at us, the fiery trial. James says there will be manifold, many trials. In fact, 
He tells us to count it all joy. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 and later chapter 5 says, don't be surprised. Don't be knocked off your ground by the fierceness of the trial that comes. We've been given assurances in the Word of God that God will sustain us in these trials, that God will build us through these trials, and that God will advance the gospel because of these trials. But if we don't know that and we don't believe that, the trial will knock us down. The arrow will pierce us. There is the the arrow of tribulation, persecution for righteousness' sake. And by the way, if you don't think that's coming, if you think this is just in Haiti, when you stand up in a culture that is absolutely falling apart and you just open up your mouth to tell the truth about the gospel, I mean, my heart is breaking and it is burdened for 17 people in Haiti. Why is it my heart feeling that way about the the millions of aborted babies that lose their life every year in this country? And the minute you talk about, you know, it's safe to talk about the people in Haiti, right? Because they're in Haiti. But, But is it safe to talk about abortion in this country and say it isn't just a choice, it's actually murder? When you say that, what do you think is coming your way? When all of a sudden you're like, well, pastor, you shouldn't talk that way. How can I not talk that way when the scripture actually describes it that way? The minute I stop talking that way, I take my shield or I take the shield God has given me and I make a little paper one and I put it up there and say, look at this shield. And I'm not talking about being obnoxious and I'm not talking about going out there and, and, and doing things in an unjust and an ungodly way. I'm talking about just in the course of your life, in the way you live out in the marketplace, when you talk with your neighbors and, and all of a sudden these topics come up, what do you do? And the answer is you take your shield up and you believe what God called you believe. You say, well, man, amen, pastor. I say, okay, let's talk about this. God forbid that would ever happen to you. Well, what would happen if one of your children came to you and said, Mom and Dad, I made a horrible mistake. I sinned. And in the mercy of God, God has allowed that sin to be exposed. And you're like, praise God. Thank you, Lord. Honey, I'm so glad Son, I'm so glad God caused you to repent. Your mom and dad love you. We forgive you. And you should. And we should do those things. And they say to you, but there's more. And you find out that because of this sin that Satan shot an arrow at your precious son or your precious daughter. And that arrow got through. And now there's a baby. And everything we're talking about here gets real in a hurry. I mean real. What about college? What about, what about, what about, what about, what about this? What about that? And you and your husband or your wife, you, you, you cry out to God. And you go back in the quietness of your bedroom and your heart is shattered. But what comes out of your heart is love and forgiveness for your son or your daughter and hope and prayer and support. But there is an arrow that Satan has notched and it's coming and it's this. You know, there is such a thing in this country as legal abortion. And it would solve a lot of things. And you say, well, I would never think that way. I would never be tempted to do that. That is not what would ever happen if I were in that circumstance. What did Paul say? Let him that thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall. You know, the only thing, the only thing 
that is going to keep you is a shield that God's given you. And that shield is what he told you about himself. I will take care of this. I am doing good and not evil. I am working all things out for good. I will be your shield. And that brings us to the next thing. How do I use the shield effectively? How do I take it up? And very quickly, let me just give you three things. Number one, you must receive the truth by believing it. Whatever God has said, do you actually believe? We talk about the inspiration of Scripture, and we, we say these words are, are, are accurate. They tell the truth about life, but, but do you believe its authority, and do you believe its sufficiency? Are you actually willing for these words that God has given about life and about the world around you? Are you willing to let those words shape you? Are you willing to let those words govern you? Are you willing to let those words guide and direct you? And, and you say, of course I am. Of course, I'm a Christian. I'm a, I'm a member of Palmetto Baptist. Of course I am. So let me ask you a really, really simple question. How often do you read it? I mean, how often are you going into this book and actually letting this book sort of saturate you so that you're not being shaped as much by what you hear on the news or what you hear at work or somebody's opinion in the latest podcast that you heard? You're actually going to the Word of God and you're saying to God, God, what do you think about this? What do you have to say about this? And the answer is we can do that because this Word isn't just inspired It isn't just truthful. It isn't just authoritative. It's actually sufficient, which means that it is what we need for life and godliness. So how do I use the shield? I I receive the truth by believing it. And then I reflect the truth by obeying it. I can believe something in my head, but until I actually let that truth shape the way I live my life, then, then all it is is a belief. And Satan always begins at the belief level, but he eventually works out to the behavior level. My belief eventually shapes what I do and what I say. So whenever I think about sin, what I do, it always starts with what I believe. Sin is a matter of belief, or more specifically, the Bible says unbelief. Every sin that you commit, every sin that I ever commit, and we, and we commit lots of sins, don't we? Every single one of them came down to a moment when we had to decide whose words we were going to actually believe. Were we going to believe the words that God gave us, or were we going to believe the words that Satan put in front of us through some mouthpiece, or maybe even our own mind? So when you think about using the shield, we must receive the truth by believing it, and we must reflect the truth by obeying it, and then we must remain in the truth by trusting it when it gets hard. And trust me, obedience is hard. And that brings me to the final thing this morning, and that is this. And the reason I bring this up is because this is kind of where I live. And I figure that if I live here, this is probably where most of you live because we're all in this as image bearers together, right? So I, I, I hear the thing about the shield being the faith and, and, and my need to believe that and to believe the right things about the faith and, and then to rest in it, remain in it, reflect it. I, I hear all that and I, I believe all that. I actually believe, Pastor Sam, what you're saying. But I just want to be straight up with you. For whatever reasons, it doesn't seem to work for me. Now, I would never stand up in church and say that because that's sort of like what I, you know, but I'd say amen along with everybody else to everything you just said. But the truth is when I actually leave here and get in my car and go home, these arrows just get through. So, so why isn't the shield working? And so the third thing we, we want to end with is that the shield is powerful and it is invincible, but there's something about the shield that you need to know. And, and so let me do this. There are, there are two Old Testament texts 
that sort of gives some insight into this. We looked at both of them earlier. Genesis 15.1, Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. So while I have to believe things about the truth, the doctrine, my belief and that doctrine really by themselves aren't the shield. The shield is actually God. And in the midst of trying to understand how it works, we can sort of lose sight. So that's why I want to come back to that idea. The shield is the faith once delivered that I have to believe, but, but what is the belief that I'm believing? And it's, it's something about God. So the shield is actually God. It's his strength. And that's what David said in 2 Samuel. This God, the God we're talking about, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord, his word proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge. There's the key. I've got to do something with all this belief. I've got to take refuge. Now, that brings it to this point. So I start saying to myself, okay, so there have to be examples of this in the Bible. And there are two New Testament stories where you see this, where Jesus Christ or God becomes literally the shield for somebody. One of the stories is in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 8 is where Jesus, uh, what, Mark 8 and then Mark 9, beginning part of the chapter is where Jesus, James, John, and Peter have been gone, had gone up together to a mountain, and those three disciples have been up there with Jesus watching the transfiguration. All right, remember that story? While they're up on the mountain having that experience, the rest of the disciples are down at the bottom of the mountain in a city, probably Capernaum. And while they're there, a father comes with a little boy. And the little boy has been tortured by a demon who is doing everything in his power to destroy, damage, defile, and ultimately kill this boy. And the father has heard about Jesus casting out demons and his disciples. And so he comes and he doesn't find Jesus he finds these other remaining disciples and they try to cast the demon out and they fail miserably. And this is stunning to them because in Mark chapter 6, Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, now I'm going to give you authority to cast out demons in my name. And by the end of Mark chapter 6, they have been casting out demons. In fact, they've been casting out many demons. So by the time you get to chapter 9, they're thinking, no problem. You've got a kid. He's got a demon. Jesus is up on the mountain. We're here. We'll handle it. And they can't. And Jesus comes down in the middle of this, and the father sees Jesus. He comes running over to Jesus. He said, look, I'm desperate. Your guys couldn't help, but I think you might. And Jesus says, what do you mean, might? And he talks to them really straight about unbelief. And this convicts the dead. And he says, Lord, I really do believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus casts the demon out. And after this is all said and done, he and the disciples find themselves in a house privately by themselves. And the disciples are like, okay, so what's the real story? What's the deal? We could, we did, we couldn't. What what is going on here? And Jesus pretty much looks at them and he says, "Um, the reason that you couldn't is because you were trying to cast them out. You say, well, where is that? It's in this little phrase. This kind comes out only by prayer. You know what prayer is? Prayer is asking God to do something. The disciples never in their own strength and in their own power, never on their best day had the ability to cast out a demon. All those demons they cast out, they were casting out because Jesus was doing it in his authority. And Jesus is just reminding them, you can't do this. You need me to do this. And you didn't ask me. 
You just thought you could do it. And Jesus became the shield for that little boy. There's an even stronger case a little bit later on toward the end of the ministry. In fact, on the last night of his life, in Luke 22, Jesus has a straight-up talk with his disciples, and they're all gathered around him. It's the last night. They're heading to the garden where Jesus is going to have this intense struggle. And on the way, they're talking, and they get to the garden, and Jesus looks at them all, both, all of them, and he talks to Peter, talks to them through Peter, and he says to Peter, Peter, I want you to know something. I want all of you to know something. Satan has desired to have all of you. The you there is plural. Satan has desired to have all of you that he might sift you and destroy you. That's the idea of sifting you like wheat. And he knew that Peter was going to have an individualized attack. And he said this, now Peter, this is not going to destroy you because I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. And when you repent, Jesus already knew the arrow was going to get through, but he knew it wasn't going to do permanent damage. In fact, he knew that through that experience and the redemptive aspect of forgiveness in that experience, it was going to strengthen Peter so that Peter could strengthen many. I have prayed for you. And three times in your New Testament, you find out that Jesus is praying for you. In John 17, verse 15, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Romans 8, 34, who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And in Hebrews 7.25, he is able to deliver to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. You say, why doesn't the shield work? I believe all the right things. I read the Bible. I believe what the Bible says. But have you been desperately crying out to God, God, help me. I believe. I believe what you said about temptation. I believe what you said about trials. I believe what you said about persecution. I believe what you said about sorrow and affliction. I believe. Help my unbelief.